Hey everyone, here I am once again working without a script. It's Tuesday, September 22nd as I record this. I'm recording the show extra early this week, uh, similar to what I did last week, because I've already received so much negative feedback to the most recent episode, which I believe was entitled Episode 165, Atheist Rue and Race. And the funny thing about that is, talk about mistakes, I jumped right from episode 163 to 165. So 164 is apparently lost in the void. It never existed. Um, Maybe I won't number this episode (laughs) to make up for it. The next week will be 166. But yeah, on a serious note, I knew last week's episode was going to be controversial And I have received an abundance of negative feedback. I think the fact that I even did last week's episode reveals my penchant for masochism. And just to catch you up, if you didn't listen, I'm always talking about on the show, uh, probably since the show's inception, I've been doing this roughly three years now, how I have a very, I like to think, humanistic approach to the uh, topic of race. I'm constantly saying how I don't even like the concept of race. I find it divisive or divisive, tomato, tomato. But I received some online comments uh, regarding my my I'm okay, you're okay, all-inclusive, <laughs> sunshiny rainbow take on race. Uh, first, um, Atheist Rue, uh, Atheism is Unstoppable, took a swipe at me because I dared to point out in passing that I thought that the history of things like slavery, Jim Crow, segregation, played a big part in why today the African-American community suffers from high rates of poverty and crime. And I had to clarify, which I shouldn't even have had to do, that just because the injustices of the past can help explain the present, that doesn't mean people who commit criminal actions, if they happen to be black, are given a get-out-of-jail-free card or given a pass. Of course, if someone commits a criminal act, you hold them accountable. But uh, Atheist Rue didn't like me bringing up slavery and Jim Crow and all that, and basically called me a regressive beta male. And then um, I received some feedback regarding race from some of uh, Atheist Rue's Flying Monkeys. Uh, One person kind of glibly said, you might not believe in race or think it's divisive, but you better know which neighborhood you're in, uh, insinuating that it might be all well and good to be high-minded and not want to believe in race or to divide us into different groups. But if you're lily white and find yourself in a black neighborhood at night, uh, you know, you might be in trouble or whatever. Um, But I basically agreed with him in the sense that even if I take issue with the concept of race, racism is still very real because we or society tends to divide us up into different groups. And unfortunately, there's this kind of in-group, out-group dynamic that we see all too often in human affairs. And so if you do find yourself in a neighborhood 
where you're one skin color and everyone else is another skin color, there could be some kind of intra-tribal <laughs> uh, violence that takes place, um, unfortunately. And I'm not trying to scaremonger here. You know, that could be one possibility. We do hear ugly stories of violence in the news every day of kind of this kind of in-group, out-group violence. But there's also nice stories, and I don't want to out the person, um, even though it, it is a nice story, so they shouldn't be ashamed. But I had someone who I've been in communication with um, tell me in response to last week's episode that when they were living in a, um, a neighborhood where that may have been predominantly black uh, and they happened to be white, there were many times when a person who happened to be black or of African descent would run after them uh, to make sure they got their wallet back when they left it behind or something like that, where maybe a, a random white stranger uh, failed to provide the same or extend the same courtesy. So there is a chance if you find yourself in the quote-unquote wrong neighborhood, you might end up running into a good Samaritan or something like that or someone who wants to give you directions. So... Like I said, not trying to scaremonger or divide people. I'm just trying to kind of dispassionately talk about this in-group, out-group dynamic that sometimes occurs and how even if race is just a man-made construct that unfortunately um, society does tend to divide us into uh, different groups. And I hope the anecdote about returning the wallet and stuff didn't seem like some weird, condescending, backhanded compliment. For some reason, it kind of reminded me of, uh, remember the old Bill O'Reilly clip about the time you went to Sylvia's restaurant with uh, Al Sharpton? I believe uh, Sylvia's is in Harlem, I think. Uh, but I'll play that clip. Uh, it's kind of funny uh, in, a, in a cringe-inducing kind of way. You know, when Sharpton and I walked in, it was like, big commotion and everything, but everybody was very nice. And I couldn't get over the fact that there was no difference between Sylvia's restaurant and any other restaurant in New York City. I mean, it was a, it was exactly the same, even though it's run by blacks, primarily uh, black patronship. Oh, there wasn't yeah. one person in Sylvia's who was uh, screaming, mf -er, I want more iced tea. <laughs> Please. You know, I mean, everybody was, uh, it was like going into an Italian restaurant in an all-white suburb in the sense of people were sitting there and they were ordering and having fun and it wasn't any kind of craziness at all. Yeah, so cringe-inducing, right? And I actually feel kind of bad for Bill O'Reilly because I think in his own weird kind of ham-handed way, he was trying to be nice, but at the same time, He's reinforcing stereotypes by saying he's surprised that people weren't yelling MFR and everything else. Hopefully I don't come off uh, that way. Uh, but anyway, what was I talking about? The kind of intra-tribal, in-group, out-group type of stuff. Oh yeah, and I was also discussing what led me to talk about race in the first place in, in last week's episode. What led up to that? So I talked about Rue's comment. And then there was another commenter, uh, CCD Image. And he's very polite. And I'm still very grateful for him, even though 
even though we might not see eye to eye completely on certain things, I just really appreciate how civil he was in his discourse. And um, he very politely challenged my idea that we're all equal in a sense or that there's no group that's innately dumber than than the next group, you know? And he brought up the subject of race and IQ and testing and studies that have been done in that area. And friend of the show, The Mad Humanist, who's also a podcaster, and please check out his podcast, uh, The Mad Humanist Podcast. He's a very insightful guy, and uh, we've been corresponding throughout the day. And I promise to keep much of our exchange private, so I won't divulge much of what he said to me, but he did get me thinking, and he suggested that when CCD Image brought up the concept of race and IQ and mentioned the studies and so forth, that I probably took that, I don't know if challenge is the right word, but... Yeah, almost a challenge to test the mettle of my um, commitment to intellectual honesty. Because here I am, I have a very kind of enlightened humanistic view of race. I don't even like the concept of race. And here I am presented, supposedly, with these, these studies or facts regarding race and IQ. What am I going to do about it? Um, am I going to just ignore it? Am I going to just push the narrative that I'd rather be true, that when it comes to intelligence, all human groups are exactly equal, or do I investigate and see where it takes me? And that's what I tried to do, and I feel like maybe where I let you guys down is that to put it in the vernacular, my research was kind of half-assed. Uh, <laughs> instead of taking a lot of time to vet a bunch of different sources, um, I took kind of a lazy approach and kind of picked the first few sources that seemed credible at face value. Now, supposedly, I think most scientists do agree that there are test gaps, and there are gaps regarding IQ among different groups. But the controversial part is, is this difference genetic? Um, You know, how should we read these differences? And I think maybe I didn't give a balanced enough sampling of, uh, of opinion on this matter. Instead, I leaned very heavily on this one article by Slate's William Salton, I think is how you pronounce his last name. And Salton himself, the way he expressed himself throughout the piece was if he was troubled by the subject of race and IQ and that there might be certain differences between groups and that he was dismayed by these supposed results and that he like myself, would rather believe that we're all perfectly equal. Um, But he felt a devotion to the facts or whatever. So 
Now, that's the big question. Did he have his facts right? And I think I owe it to you guys. What I'm going to do is read a piece that's critical of Salton's take. And also what I want to do was talk a bit about researchers Arthur Jensen and Philip Rushton. And also, I think I'll talk about Watson. James Watson, the the world-famous scientist who got in trouble several years ago for comments he made about race and intelligence. And I think that's actually what sparked uh, William Salton to write the uh, Slate piece. And it, it seems that Salton's piece drew heavily from the work of Jensen and Rushton, now, these are two legitimate, shall we say, researchers. They're actual actual scientists or researchers, but they are not without controversy. And both men have ties to the, I guess you could say, infamous Pioneer Fund, uh, which has which has repeatedly been the target of accusations of racism. And since I don't want to divulge too much of what the mad humanist had to say. I'll just read you my response before we get started here. And so here's my most recent reply to the mad humanist. You're right on a couple of counts. I definitely saw CCD Images' comments as being a challenge to my commitment to intellectual honesty. My folly was simply not doing enough research. No excuse for that. I wish I had discovered the criticisms of the Salton piece beforehand. And this next paragraph is in regard to well, the, the mad humanist was taking a very fair approach where he was saying where people on both extremes of this issue go wrong. And he talked about kind of wish thinking on the left. Um and I'm definitely not anti-left. I consider myself left-leaning. I eschew labels. You know, I, there's times I don't even feel like calling myself an atheist. But technically, technically, I'm an agnostic atheist. And most of the time, I don't mind uh, being called an atheist or just referring to myself as an atheist. Um, but I think agnostic atheist is the most accurate descriptor of uh, of my worldview. Agnostic because I think... We can't really know with 100% certainty whether or not God exists. Atheistic, because I strongly doubt things like the existence of a God or an afterlife or the supernatural claims of man-made religions. But I, um, And politically, I like to consider myself like an independent, but I lean uh, hard left on things like gay rights, um, legalizing pot, uh, equality for different groups, things like that. But anyway, yeah, so the, the mad humanist brought up, you know, maybe a certain amount of wish thinking on the left that comes into play. And I said, you also made a keen observation about the left starting with what they want to be true and working backwards. I thought that may have been my sin. My initial assumption was that there would be no IQ or test gap between different groups. And that is indeed what I wanted to be true. Then when, through my half-assed research, I discovered the race and IQ articles, I misguidedly thought I had to follow through in the name of intellectual honesty. 
I think on the next episode, I will read the piece critical of Sailton and also discuss Jensen, Rushton, and the Watson controversy. My intellectual and moral mea culpa, hopefully. And I also want to stop to say that characterization about people on the left starting with what they want to be true and working their way back, I think that's unfair a bit in the sense that that type of thinking or a confirmation bias can be seen in many groups. And we know those of us who are atheists or agnostics or skeptics, we know how prevalent that often is in the thinking of believers, saving Christian apologists, where you start with the assumption that you want to be true, that there is a God or that your specific God is the true God, and then you work backwards to try to, you know, jam uh, square pegs into round holes or whatever, do cognitive uh, gymnastics to uh, try to validate your worldview. And also, uh, I said to the mad humanists that, no, there's the drinking game for the week every time I say uh, mad humanists take a drink, but um, unless you're in an automobile. Well, it's all right if you're in the passenger seat or the back. Well, technically, then the driver can get in trouble because he has an open container. But anyway, uh, but I said to him, uh, I, because he asked me, he, you know, he wasn't sure what I was trying to accomplish or what I was trying to say with last week's episode. And that made a light bulb go off in my head. And that and it made me realize that I think last week's episode was kind of a selfish episode episode in a way. It wasn't about me trying to necessarily impart knowledge to you guys. It was me trying to defend or justify myself to people like Atheist Rue, who thought my take on race was kind of uh, too progressive or whatever. And uh, I may have come off, I mean, over and over again, hopefully it came across last week, despite some of the ugly articles that I read from and stuff, that through it all, I still find the concept of race problematic. I still do believe we're just one race, one species. And I repeatedly try to say that even if there was a a grain of truth to, to any of this weird racial IQ stuff, that it wouldn't change how I viewed my fellow human beings and that we should still treat each other with respect and dignity and that even if those test results were valid or whatever or this hypothesis about head size and IQ, even if there was were anything to it, it would still be a matter of generalities and averages or something like that. And uh, even as William Salton himself says, if anyone tries to judge your intelligence on your skin color, then the only thing you can take away from that is that they're a bigger fool than you are. You know what I mean? So hopefully my humanist values still showed through. But like I said, I think my big sin was not doing enough research. And so I'm going to try to now give some airtime to the other side of the argument, so to speak. But yeah, just to reiterate, I do think it was kind of petty 
and selfish of me. Like some people have told me that in a way there's a certain type of bravery involved perhaps in what I did by talking about an uncomfortable subject, a subject that I myself find uncomfortable because I felt a commitment to try to follow the facts where they, wherever they may lead, even if they lead to a dark place. But I don't think it was really bravery at all. I think it was petty on my part. And uh, I think there even may have been, as ashamed as I am to admit it, an element of peer pressure. You know, I got some people pushing back against my progressive view of race. And then I felt the need to justify myself. And in the process, I may have come across... uh, in a way I didn't want to, but mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maximum culpa. Um, so first I'll read, and this is also from Slate, but it's, but it's by Stephen Metcalf. And to be honest with you, other than being reporters, I'm not sure what the bona fides are of either Metcalf or Salton. They both seem like intelligent men, both good writers, uh, but I'm not sure if they personally have any science background or not. But I'll read this piece by Stephen Metcalf. And he sounds knowledgeable uh, about the subject matter. At least as knowledgeable as Salton. Uh, but here we go. And it's called Dissecting the IQ Debate. A response to William Salton's series on race and IQ. In response to James Watson's remarks concerning the intelligence of blacks, Slate's William Salton wrote a series of pieces on race, IQ, and genetics. In his first post, Salton wrote, It's time to prepare for the possibility that equality of intelligence in the sense of racial averages on tests will turn out not to be true. One's to-do list reflects a balance of perceived likelihoods. Is preparing for the congenital mental inferiority of blacks more like budgeting for retirement or buying asteroid insurance? Caveats and wiggle words aside, the impression left by Salton's piece is that it's more like, say, a prudent response to rising sea levels. To drive the point home, Salton suggested a historical parallel. Liberals made angry or defensive by the possibility that blacks, as a group, score lower on IQ tests than whites, as a group, for genetic reasons, are like Christians made angry or defensive by the theory of evolution. Thus the headline, Liberal Creationism. Salton's analogy implies that the conflict over race, intelligence, and genetics is a conflict between science and superstition. It's not. It's a conflict between science and science. Worse even, when Salton shades his rhetoric carefully, the reader is left with the impression that science, hard, empirical, disinterested science, is trending to a hereditarian explanation for the IQ gap. And that bad or weak science, really a kind of wishful, mushy, quasi-superstitious scientism, is on the side of an environmental or cultural explanation. If you explore the subject in any depth, or even just click through to some of Salton's own links, you find the opposite is closer to the truth. In a semi-retraction labeled Regrets, Salton writes, The thing that has upset me most concerns a co-author of one of the articles I cited. 
and goes on to describe how that author is pretty clearly a white supremacist. The Clintonian admission technically true, Sailton did cite the work of J. Philip Rushton, and some may consider Rushton, based on his comments and connections, to be a dyed-in-the-wool old-fashioned racist. Rushton is not the author of one of the articles Sailton cited. Rushton is the author of the article from which Sailton draws almost all of his ammunition. Rushton's paper co-authored with Arthur Jensen, 30 Years of Research into Race Differences on Cognitive Abilities, is a meta-analysis, a purportedly even-handed review of all the relevant research on race and intelligence. The majority of Sailton's facts come to a reader, therefore, not secondhand, but thirdhand and via and via the prism of two highly biased researchers. We'll get to their science in a moment, but first, who are these two men? J. Philip Rushton is the head of America's most dedicated subsidizer and promoter of eugenic research, the Pioneer Fund, which I have written about here, and there's a link. Arthur Jensen has spent the last 40 years arguing against compensatory education, or the idea that programs like Head Start have any efficacy in alleviating black underachievement. Think about it. Jensen began claiming that black mental inferiority was intractable a mere five years after the Civil Rights Act, four years after the Voting Rights Act, and four years after Head Start was created. Since the late 60s, since the heyday of civil rights and the inception of such compensatory education, Programs as Head Start, blacks have made huge gains vis-a-vis whites on a wide range of standardized tests. For obvious reasons, Rushton and Jensen refuse to acknowledge these gains. Oddly, Sailton appears equally reluctant. After spinning out a tortured simile linking the surge in black test scores to the surge in Iraq, he concludes, To construe meaningful closure of the IQ gap in the last 20 years, you have to do a lot of cherry-picking, inference, and projection. In fact, the method is quite simple. Absent a national random sampler for IQ data and race, researchers have looked at a range of tests that highly correlate with IQ and extrapolated from them that the black-white IQ gap has likely been cut by a third, social science almost always proceeds by inference that Sailton finds it suspicious in the instance is curious. But let's give Rushton and Jensen the benefit of the doubt and peek for a minute under the hood. On inspection, what does their own meta-analysis look like? Rushton and Jensen admire the famous Minnesota Twins study, in which black, white, and mixed-race adoptees were placed into white families. It has become a kind of gold standard for the researchers who believe the IQ gap is hereditary. And Rushton and Jensen devote a full seven paragraphs to it. Here is what you would never know about the Minnesota study from reading Jensen and Rushton, or for that matter, Sailton. It held neither race nor expected IQ constant. The black children were adopted at a later age than the other children, which the study's own authors note is associated with depressed IQ. The black children's mothers had lower educational levels than those of the white children. The quality of placement for the white children was higher than for the other children. And as the study's own authors have noted, the black and mixed-race children experienced severe adjustment problems as they grew up. 
Much of Sailton's, and there's a fancy French word, uh, just use context clues, of the rest of the research surveyed in 30 years of research into race differences on cognitive abilities is highly questionable. His takeaway regarding the admixture studies is precisely the opposite of what an American Psychological Association task force concluded the studies show, that more European blood in a black American does not make him smarter. Sailton points up the problems with a favorite study of the environmentalists. I wonder if that's a typo and it's supposed to be points out the problems. It literally says points up the problems. But anyway, um, but, okay, points out the problems with a favorite study of the environmentalists into the IQ outcomes of children fathered by foreign soldiers and raised by white German mothers. This study showed that kids with African fathers scored the same as those with white fathers. But Salton says it suffers from a fatal flaw. Blacks in the military had been screened for IQ. Salton concludes, even environmentalist scholars who advocate non-genetic explanations concede that this filter radically distorts the numbers. But this is flatly untrue. The two most prominent environmentalists, Richard Nisbet and James Flynn, have dismissed this very objection. Both have pointed out that white soldiers were also screened and so had higher IQs than the general white population. James Flynn has argued extensively that the black-white gap in the military was the same as in the population at large. Salton uses a sheer volume of statistics to create an aura of gathering unanimity. But many of his statistics have been taken at face value. To take one example, Sailton casually countenances the assertion that the mean IQ of sub-Saharan Africa is 70. The number arrives to us via a man named Richard Lynn. Lynn is the author of the 1996 volume Dysgenics, Genetic Deterioration, and Modern Populations. In historical societies, Lynn wrote, illegitimate children born predominantly to parents with low intelligence and weak character suffered high mortality until the scourge of modern medicine, such culling assured the expulsion of weaklings from the gene pool, while the operation of positive natural selection ensured the reproductive fitness of the leaders and of the upper and middle classes. The instrument Lynn used to apprehend these depressed IQ scores is a supposedly culturally unbiased exam called Raven's Progressive Matrices. To use an instrument developed in the West on semi and possibly illiterate people is a fool's errand, says Nisbet, a distinguished university professor at the University of Michigan who studies cognition and social psychology. Then they use the results to say that half the people in Africa are mentally retarded. It's laughable. Salton places faith in an in-depth task force report from the American Psychological Association titled Intelligence, Knowns and Unknowns, dating from 1996. The task force, Salton admits, doesn't conclude that genes explain racial gaps in IQ. But the tests on which racial gaps are biggest happen to be the tests on which genes, as measured by comparative sibling performance, exert the most influence. Salton's rapid summary makes it sound as though the task force drew the necessary dots, then experiencing a failure of nerve refused to connect them. Nothing could be further from the truth. The APA made its conclusion absolutely clear. There is some inconclusive evidence that culture factors account for the IQ gap between blacks and whites, and there is even less empirical support for a genetic explanation. Furthermore, the APA task force lays out, finally, the real heart of the conflict. 
To understand what is really being fought over when we fight over the IQ gap between blacks and whites, its authors explain you must think through an analogy. Imagine two wheat fields. Now imagine two genetically identical sets of seeds. The analogy was first made famous by Harvard evolutionary biologist and geneticist Richard Lewontin, I think it is. Now imagine each field is planted with these two identical seed stalks. Field number one is given the best possible input, sunshine intensity, rain, soil, nitrates, etc. Field number two is given much less of all the above. Within each field, inputs are kept uniform. Inevitably, the first field grows a healthier supply of grain than the second. But here's the rub. Within each field, the variation in outcomes is entirely hereditary. Between the two fields, the variation in outcomes is entirely environmental. The APA task force reduces the question of IQ test score gap to a single set of questions as they list them. Are the environmental and cultural situations of American blacks and whites also substantially and consistently different, different enough to make this a good analogy? If so, the within-group heritability of IQ scores is irrelevant to the issue. Or are those situations similar enough to suggest that the analogy is inappropriate and that one can plausibly generalize from within-group heritabilities? Thus, the issue ultimately comes down to personal judgment. How different are the relevant life experiences of whites and blacks in the United States today? Uh, it looks like nobody's perfect. There's a uh, typo here. At first, I thought it was a name, Toth. T-O-T-H-E, but I think it's supposed to be two words, to the, to the APA superb list, I would add some related queries. Does it feel as though researchers like Jensen and Rushton, the so-called race realists, have spent their careers examining a range of competing hypotheses for the black-white IQ gap? and carefully scrutinizing the quality of the research at their disposal? Or have they been attempting at all costs to prove a single hypothesis that blacks are congenitally dumber than whites? Shouldn't researchers on a highly charged subject be required to show a minimum of clean hands? Why is it that every researcher I could find who supports the heredity-only thesis takes money from the Pioneer Fund? Would you ever take money from the Pioneer Fund under any circumstances? In the absence of some startling new evidence, the crux of the issue turns out to be this. Do you believe the legacy of American racism in all its complexity can explain depressed black IQ scores, even when controlling for all other factors, including socioeconomic status? Is the black experience, in other words, so unique as a constituent for nearly all black Americans a separate wheat field? If you say yes, then good news. You believe, along with most prominent environmentalists, that the black-white IQ gap will close in the next 50 years or so. If you think no, then bad news. You believe, with most prominent hereditarians, that blacks as a group must resign themselves to higher rates of poverty, unemployment, divorce, and violent criminality purely as a matter of genetic fate. The crux of Salton's piece was his liberal creationist analogy. The analogy is hopeless along several competing dimensions, but it reminded me of the dilettante's first law of empirical narcissism. In a moment of controversy, the temptation to proclaim yourself an avatar of truth and your opponent a faith-based inquisitor is natural enough, but Darwin is Darwin thanks to generations of independent corroboration. By definition, generations of independent corroboration do not stand behind a thesis that is still being hotly contested. 
In claiming Darwin or Copernicus or Galileo for his cause, a person is often by implication saying, there would be consensus here, but for you damned critics. This is an odd definition of consensus. Conversely, when one's angry reaction to an idea is being adduced as evidence in its favor, one should ask, what does my anger have to do with the truth content of your idea? If you told me there was a genetic basis to Jewish avarice, I would be angry. So what? What does my anger have to do with your crappy research? <laughs> then it looks like there's a correction at the bottom. The Minnesota twin study referred to throughout this paragraph was originally identified as having been subsidized by the Pioneer Fund. In fact, this study led by Sandra Scar has no connection to the Pioneer Fund. It was another contemporaneous Minnesota twin study led by Thomas G. Bouchard that received funding from the organization. And see, that's kind of the scary thing. If you're someone who cares about the truth and getting to the facts, it's kind of scary how easily you can be persuaded by an article you might come across. And I was going to kind of blame it on... Google and and the fact that we have this seemingly boundless repository of knowledge and uh, opinion at our fingertips. But I imagine the same thing could happen with uh, good old-fashioned paper research uh, at a library or whatever. You come across one well-worded article and the person sounds intelligent enough so you assume that they've got it right. Then you can find another well-worded, intelligent article, you know, that is in complete opposition to the first. And that's why I guess, you know, like I said at the, like I said at the top of the show, um, my research was half-assed, to put it crudely. Uh, I should have tried to vet not only my sources, but Salton's as well. But I guess the next logical step is to let's take a look at the pioneer. Let's take a look at the pioneer fund and uh, see who they are and what they're all about. But after all that high-minded talk about proper research, I'm going to turn to you guessed it, Wikipedia. I still think that Wikipedia is a lot more trustworthy than some people give them credit for. Um, but I'm just looking for a, a kind of synopsis of who uh, these people are. And it's kind of funny. Now, it's just called Pioneer Fund. It says, not to be confused with the Pioneer Fund, a Denver-based charity founded by Helen M. McLaren, I think it is. Now, I'm just, imagine if you had this, this positive, well-meaning charity and it happened to have almost the same exact name as a, a group that has this aura of racism about it. Um, but anyway, the Pioneer Fund, hey, this says the Pioneer Fund, what the heck? The Pioneer Fund is an American nonprofit foundation established in 1937 to advance the scientific study of heredity and human differences. And that's in, uh, quotes, to advance the scientific study of heredity and human differences. From 2002 until his death in October 2012, the fund was headed by psychology professor J. Philip Rushton. Okay, so there's J. Philip Rushton, one of the men whose work Salton uh, drew from. 
The fund states that it focuses on projects it perceives will not be easily funded due to controversial subject matter. The organization has been criticized by some other scholars as racist and white supremacist in nature, or as a hate group. As of October 2013, Richard Lynn is the primary contact for the Pioneer Fund. Oh, I see. The THE before Pioneer Fund is, uh, the T isn't capitalized. Um... Two of the most notable studies funded by the Pioneer Fund are the Minnesota study of twins reared apart. And, and that's strange uh, because that slate piece I just read makes a correction regarding the twin study. But it also seems to imply or say that the Pioneer Fund was responsible for funding a separate twin study. Uh, but anyway, and the Texas Adoption Project, which studied the similarities and differences of identical twins and other children adopted into non-biological families. The Pioneer Fund has also been an important source of funding for research on the partly genetic hypothesis of IQ variation among races. The fund's grantees and publications have generated controversy, including the 1994 publication of The Bell Curve, which drew heavily from the Pioneer Fund which drew heavily from Pioneer-funded research. The fund has also been criticized for its ties to eugenics. Okay, so I'm scanning down at the next paragraph, and you know whenever you spot the word Nazi in an upcoming paragraph, things probably aren't going to go in a nice direction. It says, uh, this is about their early history. The Pioneer Fund was incorporated on March 11th, 1937. The first five directors were Wycliffe Preston Draper, heir to a large fortune in the fund's de facto final authority, served on the board of directors from 1937 until 1972, he founded the Pioneer he founded the Pioneer Fund after having acquired an interest in the eugenics movement which was strengthened by his 1935 visit to Nazi Germany where he met with the leading eugenicists of the Third Reich who used the inspiration from the American movement as a basis for the Nuremberg laws. He served in the British Army at the beginning of WW1, transferring to the U.S. Army as the Americans entered the war. During WW2, he was stationed as an intelligence officer in India. Psychology professor and pioneer fund critic William H. Tucker, however, describes Draper as someone who, aside from his brief periods of military service, never pursued a profession or held a job of any kind. According to a 1960 article in The Nation, an unnamed geneticist said Draper told him he wished, he wished to prove simply that Negroes were inferior. Draper funded advocacy of repatriation of blacks to Africa. Draper also made large financial contributions to, effort, to efforts to oppose the American civil rights movement and the racial desegregation mandated by Brown versus the Board of Education, such as 250000 to the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission in 1963. And almost every guy I look at here, uh, well, at least uh, I gotta be honest, the next guy down, it also talks about uh, the Nazis, I think, or the Third Reich, at least. Oh, I see. William H. Tucker was the second of the five directors. Harry Laughlin was the third, 
It looks like he had something to do with the enforcement of, of Southern race integrity laws uh, by developing techniques for identifying the pass for white, and that's in quotes, person who might successfully hide all of his black blood. He singled out Jews as a group slow to assimilate. Eleven months after the enactment of the Nuremberg Laws, Laughlin wrote an official at the University of Heidelberg, which had awarded him an honorary doctorate, that the United States and the Third Reich shared a common understanding of the practical application of eugenic principles to racial endowments and racial health. And then the next guy, Frederick Osborne, wrote in 1937 that the Nazi law for the prevention of hereditary diseased offspring was the most exciting experiment that had ever been tried. And that reminds me how, you know, it's kind of scary to think of, but there was a big eugenics movement in in America in the first half of the uh, 20th century. So things aren't looking good for the Pioneer Fund here. And even if you want to play devil's advocate and say that, this doesn't necessarily mean that later scientific research that was funded by them was necessarily uh, racist or, or, or biased. This is the foundation we're looking at. And if you look at this foundation of eugenics and racism um, coupled with the nature of the research of Rushton and Jensen. I mean, it looks somewhat damning. Uh, It doesn't paint them in a good light. It looks like from the get-go, this organization had this taint of uh, racist ideology about it. So that's the Pioneer Fund. And I was doing a search for Rushton and Jensen, and I got an EDU site. And, uh... It is pretty wacky, though, because it does seem like other members of the scientific community are dubious of their findings and uh, of their leanings towards a genetic explanation for the IQ gap or the test gap. But these guys are actual scientists, and it's just kind of wacky. Um, J. Philip Rushton, the University of Western Ontario, Arthur R. Jensen, University of California, Berkeley. I'm not going to read too much of this. Uh, when's this paper date from? Psychology, Public Policy, and Law, 2005. 30 years of research on race differences and cognitive ability. The cultural only, 0% genetic, 100% environmental, in the hereditarian, 50% genetic, 50% environmental, models of the causes of mean black-white differences in cognitive ability. Um, Very strange. Arthur Jensen, for the Danish actor, see Arthur Jensen, actor. (laughs) Um, So Arthur Jensen died in 2012, aged 89, uh, born August 24th, 1923. Fields, educational psychology, intelligence, cognition, behavior, genetics. Institutions, University of California, Berkeley. Alma mater, Columbia University. He was a professor of educational psychology. Known for his work in psychometrics and differential psychology, which is concerned with how and why individuals differ behaviorally from one another. 
He was a major proponent of the hereditarian position in the nature and nurture debate, the position that genetics play a significant role in behavioral traits such as intelligence and person and ugh, such as intelligence and personality. He was the author of over 400 scientific papers published in refereed journals and sat on the editorial boards of the scientific journal Intelligence and Personality and Individual Differences. He was rated as one of the 50 most eminent psychologists of the 20th century. He was also a controversial figure, largely for his, conclu largely for his conclusions regarding the causes of race-based differences in intelligence. And... Uh, there's a list of criticisms of Jensen, an anthropologist um, and neuroscientist by the name of Melvin Connor, and it says uh, wrote in the notes to his book, The Tangled Wing, Biological Constraints on the Human Spirit. Statements made, did I put an extra R in spirit? I've been doing that recently. I don't know if it's a New England thing or a me thing. Statements made by Arthur Jensen, William Shockley, and other investigators in the late 1960s and early 1970s about race and IQ or social class and IQ rapidly passed into currency in policy discussions. Many of these statements were proved wrong, but they had already influenced some policymakers, and that influence is very difficult to recant. By 1994, the time of the Bell Curve's publishing, Jensen had received $1.1 million from the Pioneer Fund, an organization frequently described as racist and white supremacist in nature. And uh, my fellow atheists, agnostic atheists, non-believers, skeptics, scientifically-minded uh, cats, will probably be familiar with, with uh, Stephen Jay Gould, of course, uh, of Burgess Shale uh, fame, I think, um, in non-overlapping magisterium or magisteria, magisterium. Um, but he was a critic of Jensen. Let's see. Paleontologist and evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould attacked Jensen's work in his 1981 book, The Mismeasure of Man. Gould writes that Jensen misapplies the concept of heritability, which is defined as a measure of the variation of a trait due to inheritance with, within a population. According to Gould, Jensen uses heritability to measure differences between populations. Gould also disagrees with, with Jensen's belief that IQ tests measure a real variable, or G, um, or it looks like G is the uh, factor. Tests measure a real variable, G, or the general factor common to a large number of cognitive abilities, which can be measured along a unilinear scale. This is a claim most closely identified with Charles Spearman. According to Gould, Jensen misunderstood the research of L.L. Thurston. To ultimately support this claim, Gould, however, argues that Thurston's factor analysis of intelligence revealed G to be an illusion. Gould criticizes Jensen's sources, including his use of Catherine Cox's 1926 Genetic Studies of Genius, which examines historiometrically the IQs of historic individuals after their deaths. And it says uh, in 1980, Jensen published a detailed book in defense of the tests used to measure mental abilities entitled Bias and Mental Testing. And he says, until we find out what the relevant psychological predictors are for which racial classification per se is merely a stand-in variable, we have no choice but to include race or other group membership as a predictive variable along with the test scores of other predictive measures. 
On the other hand, if the overprediction of the minority group's criterion performance is not too extreme, it may seem reasonable to many to leave it uncorrected, thereby giving the benefit of the slight predictive bias to the presumably disadvantaged group. Then it looks like Jensen had at least one defender here. Um, pointing out that many of Jensen's opponents allowed their scientific conclusions to be far more biased by their political views than he did, is it K? K-A-Y-E, not Kanye. K quoted 18th century David Hume. There is no method of reasoning more common and yet none more blamable than in philosophical debates to endeavor the refutation of any hypothesis by a pretext of its dangerous consequences to religion and morality. In 1982, um, Jensen gives point-by-point -point rebuttals to much of Gould's critique, Gould's critique, rather, including Gould's treatment of heritability, um, Jensen's response and criticism. In Arthur Jensen's response to Gould's criticism in the paper titled The Debunking of Scientific Fossils and Straw Persons, Jensen begins his paper with the observation, Stephen J. Gould is a paleontologist at Harvard's Museum of Comparative Zoology and offers a course at Harvard entitled Biology as a Social Weapon. Apparently, the course covers much of the same content as does the present book. Having had some personal cause for interest in ideological motivated attacks on biologically oriented behavioral scientists, I first took notice of Gould when he played a prominent role in a group called Science for the People and in that group's attack on the theories of Harvard zoologist Edward O. Wilson, a leader in the development of sociobiology. Well, Jensen recognizes the validity of some of Gould's claims and many places he criticizes Gould's general approach. This charge of a social value-laden science undoubtedly contains an element of truth. In recent years, however, we recognize this charge as the keystone of the Marxist interpretation of the history of science. He claims that uh, Gould made a number of misrepresentations. In his reference to my own work, Gould includes at least nine citations that involve more than just an expression of Gould's opinion. In these citations, Gould purportedly paraphrases my views. Yet in eight of the nine cases, Gould's representation of these views is false, misleading, or grossly caricatured. Non-specialists could have no way of knowing any of this without reading the cited sources. While an author can occasionally make an inadvertent mistake in paraphrasing another, it appears Gould's paraphrases are consistently slanted to serve his own message. And I guess there's someone named James R. Flynn who is critical of Jensen that Jensen respected in some way. Now and then I am asked by colleagues, students, and journalists who, in my opinion, are the most respectable critics of my position on the race IQ issue. The name James R. Flynn is by far the first that comes to mind. His book, Race IQ and Jensen, is a distinguished contribution to the literature on this topic, and among the critiques I have seen of my position is virtually in a class by itself for objectivity, thoroughness, and scholarly integrity. So I guess now let's take a look at uh, Philip Rushton, John Philip Rushton. He also died in 2012, was born in uh, 1943, was a British-born Canadian psychology professor at the University of Western Ontario, who became known to the general public during the 1980s and 1990s for research on race and intelligence, race and crime, and other apparent racial variation. His book, Race, Evolution, and Behavior, 1995, is about the application of RK selection theory to humans. 
Rushton's controversial work came under attack within the scientific community for the quality of the research and allegations that it was racist. From 2002, he was the head of the Pioneer Fund, a research foundation accused of being racist. See, race and intelligence. Rushton was a proponent of the idea that racial differences in IQ are partially related to genetic inheritance. Research areas include brain size, effects of inbreeding depression on IQ, and effects of admixture. Oh, and this is interesting. I guess he said something about Islam in 2009. In 2009, Rushton spoke at the Preserving Western Civilization Conference in Baltimore. I'm just laughing because that almost sounds like in light of how the Pioneer Fund started and all that, it sounds like a euphemism for keep us white or something. But uh, preserving Western Civilization Conference in Baltimore, it was organized by Michael H. Hart for the stated purpose of addressing the need to defend, uh, quote unquote, America's Judeo-Christian heritage and European identity from immigrants, Muslims and African-Americans. In his speech, Rushton said that Islam was not just a cultural, but also a genetic problem. He thought the religion and issues associated with it were not just a condition of the belief system. His theory was that Arabs have an aggressive personality with relatively closed, simple minds and were less amenable to reason. The Anti-Defamation League described the conference attendees as racist academics, conservative pundits, and anti-immigrant activists. All right, so so where the hell does all of this leave us? Um, so it's really weird. We're dealing with a couple of guys who are who have academic bona fides. I mean, these guys are, are real professors, you know, um, and researchers, but there's undoubtedly some kind of weird racial bias going on, even though Jensen was also affiliated with the Pioneer Fund. Rushton's racism, if I can say that, seems to be maybe much more brazen or on the table than Jensen's, at least from what I've read. Let's see, there's something else here. In 2005, Rushton was quoted in the Ottawa Citizen as blaming the destruction of Toronto the Good on its black and half. Yeah, this guy's all out, man. In the same article, Rushton was reported as suggesting that equalizing outcomes across groups was impossible. The Southern Poverty Law Center called the piece yet another attack by Rushton, and it criticized those who published his work and that of the other race scientists. That has academic opinions of Rushton. It has a favorable one from a Harvard biologist, E.O. Wilson, who says that um, the basic reasoning by Rushton is solid evolutionary reasoning. That is, it is logically sound. If he had seen some apparent geographic variation for a non-human species, a species of sparrow or sparrowhawk, for example, no one would have batted an eye then unfavorable. In 89, a a geneticist and media personality, David Suzuki, criticized Rushton's racial theories in a live televised debate at the University of Western Ontario. 
He said, there will always be Rushtons in science and we must always be prepared to root them out. At the same occasion, when Rushton was asked if he believed in racial superiority, he said, oh no, he said, from an evolutionary point of view, superiority can only mean adaptive value, if it even means this. And we've got to realize that each of these populations is perfectly, beautifully adapted for their own ancestral environments. So now, if, if you guys haven't fallen asleep on me yet, I'll talk a little bit about James Watson, because it was his controversial comments about race that seemed to spark the, uh, the series of William Salton articles. So, of course, James Watson is a science legend, uh, along with uh, Francis Crick. Um, let's see, he's aged 87, born 1928. James Dewey Watson, born April 6, 1928, is an American molecular biologist, geneticist, and zoologist, best known as one of the co-discoverers of the structure of DNA. In 1953, with Francis Crick, Watson, Crick, and Maurice Wilkins were awarded the 1962 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for their discoveries concerning the molecular structure of nucleic acids and its significance for information transfer in living material. Then if you scroll down, there's a list of provocative comments he's made. And uh, this first one actually involves Richard Dawkins. He's been quoted in the... He's been quoted in the Sunday Telegraph, 1997, is stating, if you could find the gene which determines sexuality and a woman decides she doesn't want a homosexual child, well, let her. I'm not sure what well, let her means. Maybe, maybe let her alter the genes or let her have an abortion. The biologist Richard Dawkins wrote a letter to the Independent claiming that Watson's position was misrepresented by the Sunday Telegraph article and that Watson would equally consider the possibility of having a heterosexual child to be just as valid as any other reason for abortion to emphasize that, to emphasize that Watson is in favor of allowing choice. And this one, oh man... On the issue of obesity, Watson has also been quoted as saying, and this is in 2000, whenever you interview fat people, you feel bad because you know you're not going to hire them. And I'm just thinking like, I mean, he must be hiring people for science-related jobs or as lab technicians or something. As long as they can do the job, who cares if they're fat? Then, uh, well, speaking at a conference in 2000, Watson had suggested a link between skin color and sex drive, hypothesizing that dark-skinned people have stronger libidos. His lecture argued that extracts of melanin, which give skin its color, had been found to boost subjects' sex drive. That's why you have Latin lovers, he said. According to people who attended the lecture, you've never heard of an English lover, only an English patient. What about James Bond? Eh, but he's fictional. Or what about people like me? I'm mostly Italian, but I'm pale as can be. I think I have a pretty good libido. Is that too much information? Now, here's the racist stuff. On October 25th, 2007, Watson was compelled to retire as chancellor of the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory on New York's Long Island and from its board of directors after he had been quoted in the Times the previous week as saying... I am inherently gloomy about the prospect of Africa because all our social policies are based on the fact that their intelligence is the same as ours, whereas all the testing says not really. 
He went on to say that despite the desire that all human beings should be equal, people who have to deal with black employees find this not true. He was later found to carry 16% African ancestry. That's kind of like entertaining poetic justice. Um, And maybe you could give him something of a pass if he was basing his initial statement on the test gap or something like that. Um, But where he says people have to deal, people who have to deal with black employees find this not true. And he's talking about the desire to believe that all people are equal. And like I've said, and not to try to sound ultra PC, but most of the black people I have ever met or, or interacted with have been at least, at least of average intelligence. And the one, many of those who I went to school with performed better academically than myself. And it's funny, when I was going back to school, before I, before I really decided what, what I wanted to go back to school for, I took, you know, I dabbled in going back to college and took miscellaneous courses. And I took a psychology course, which I actually did very well in. Uh, I, I just sound like Donald Trump bragging. I'm just saying that because when I first started going back to school, my grades were horrible because I didn't know if I wanted to be there. And I kept leaving. But when I started to get serious about it, my grades drastically improved. I think I got like an A or something in that psychology course. But the professor happened to be black. And I think he was either, he might have been Haitian or from the Caribbean. He had a fairly thick accent, but very intelligent guy, great teacher. Um, uh, And he used to try to inspire us by saying that he believed everyone had a quote unquote Mercedes Benz brain. And that might be a bit too idealistic. We know that some people have l- severe learning disabilities or some people have varying degrees of maybe you know mental retardation or something like that. But generally speaking, I think his point was that some of us might have different ways of learning or, or something like that, but we all have potential. If we learn how to focus, utilize our brains, learn which way is, is which method of learning is best for us. We can be capable of great things. In that sense, we all have a Mercedes Benz brain, if the human brain was an automobile. Uh, um, but I can remember, and this, I was probably like in my early 20s, I think at this time, and the subject of our people born evil came up. I remember the, there was this guy, he just seemed like this kind of worn out NASCAR dad, probably like pushing 50 or something. And he said, not kiddingly, not sarcastically, in a really gloomy, serious tone, that he believed people were born evil. And he was basing that on his experience with his own kids. <laughs> I was thinking like, oh man. And you guys know how long-winded I am and how I tend to digress. So I think I gave my opinion. And I went into how I don't really believe in evil in any supernatural or spiritual sense. Um, And I think that led into, even though at the time I didn't regard myself as an atheist, I didn't even really think about that label. Uh, This was long before I knew who the hell Dawkins or Hitchens were. I said how I just said plainly in front of the whole class how I basically believed when you die, that's it. You rot in the ground. Show's over. It, <laughs> it's kind of a brutal way to put it. But I remember he was like, kind of like shocked or incredulous. He's like, really? 
that's it? That's the, that's what you really believe? And I'm like, yeah. And after class, a couple of other students actually came up to me and said they agreed with me. But, uh, yeah, but anyway, so this guy, you know, basing this on saying that his own anecdotal experience is that black people that he's known or, or that have worked for him are below average intelligence or something like that. I can't see how that can be true. That reveals to me that there probably is some kind of racial bias on his part. I mean, when I think about, I mean, you name the ethnicity. When I think about people I've encountered and of any minority group, of any ethnic group, of any quote unquote racial group, I don't think the majority of or the on average any of them have seemed below average intelligence or have seemed less intelligent than whites. Hopefully now you guys don't think I'm going too far in the other direction. I'm being super PC lib man to make up for last week, you know, um, cause I'd like to think, and, and hopefully you guys think this way of me too, that I have a very humanistic and inclusive view when it comes to race and that hopefully I, I'm, pretty far from what someone would think of as a racist. But like I was saying, I think my big sin last week was that, not that I wasn't politically correct enough, but that I didn't vet my research enough or, or the articles I drew from enough. I put too much faith in that one article by Salton, and I wish I had known more about Jensen and Rushton in the Pioneer Fund before I had read that, or I wish I had known how much he drew from their work beforehand. But I hope you guys see me as someone who has a kind of enlightened humanistic view on quote-unquote race. Um, and unfortunately, it does seem like this so-called test gap is real, but what we don't know is how much of any of it is genetic. And I'm not trying to say we should reject the work of Rushton and Jensen out of some PC knee-jerk reaction because we don't like what they have to say. But I think there's enough there that we should at least be wary or skeptical of them. When you look at the kind of racist eugenic roots of the Pioneer Fund, uh, when you look at uh, the comments of Rushton, especially regarding race and the type of conferences that this guy was speaking at, then we, we should be skeptical. And also when it seems like other members of the scientific community are saying that, hey, the jury's not in, there's not enough evidence for a genetic explanation for the test gap be between racial groups. We should at least be wary of those guys. Um, Rushton, Jensen, etc. Okay, so I was trying to resist the temptation of walking down the poison path of IQ and head size again, since it got me into trouble last week. But I had a number of people, probably maybe three different people, a couple of them really good friends of the show, respond incredulously to the idea that there may be uh, a correlation between IQ and head size. And 
in, in full disclosure, what I've learned from my reading is that this is indeed a kind of argument employed by racists and white uh, supremacists. So we have to be careful how we go about this. And to be honest, it's something I've never given that much thought to until researching last week's episode. I think I may I think I may have made just a kind of semi-conscious assumption throughout the years that maybe there was some kind kind of correlation between brain size and intelligence, and maybe that's why animals like whales and elephants seem to have really large brains, and we know that they're relatively speaking, these incredibly intelligent uh, mammals. But I never gave any serious thought or it never even really occurred to me to think whether or not head size varied between quote-unquote racial groups or let's take race out of the equation, whether or not just if an individual's head size had anything to do with their, their IQ. But as much as this does seem to smack of old racial pseudoscience and eugenics, it seems that it's something that mainstream scientists don't outright dismiss. And of course, I brought it up because I was responding to that subscriber's comments about race and IQ and well read and well reading that uh, William Salton slate piece. Uh, his uh, Salton's article mentions the possibility of head size having some correlation to IQ, and that's the only reason why I brought it up last week. Uh, but right now, I'm at uh, Stanford uh, University's official site, uh, neuroscience.stanford.edu. It looks like there's a neuroscientist here. Um, Actually, well, maybe they're officially a neuroscientist at this point, but they're technically a graduate student. I think her name's Kendra Lechtenberg, and they have this section on Stanford EDU where the public can ask questions about neuroscience. And it's called, and this particular article is entitled, Ask a Neuroscientist, Does a Bigger Brain Make You Smarter? Graduate students take questions from the public and answer them on a blog, New Right West, as part of their Ask the Expert series. The question. There is a puzzling question I've been meaning to ask some science experts, but I didn't know where to turn to. I just learned recently that some humans have larger brains than others. Is there a correlation between having a large brain and intelligence? And it looks like the person submitting the question goes by the handle Apioth or Apioth or something like that. And here's the answer. Hi, Apioth. You bring up a controversial question, exclamation mark. It certainly is. It's gotten me in trouble. The relationship between brain size and intelligence, both among humans and between different species, has never been particularly well defined. Humans like to believe that our exceptional cognitive abilities must indicate that we are the kings of the animal kingdom in terms of brain size, or at least that we have the largest brains relative to our body size. 
As nature would have it, both of these common assumptions are incorrect. Whales and elephants have much bigger brains than humans, and we have about the same brain-to-body mass ratio as mice. Since it would be against human nature to admit defeat, scientists have crafted a third measure of brain size, called the encephalization quotient which is the ratio of actual brain mass relative to the predicted brain mass for an animal's size, based off the assumption that larger animals require slightly less brain matter relative to the size compared to very small animals. By this metric, at least humans come out on top, with an EQ of 7.5, far surpassing the dolphin's 5.3 and the mouse's measly 0.5. Okay, so despite the uncertain relationship between brain size and cognitive abilities, between different species, can brain size predict anything about intelligence amongst humans? Does having a gigantic brain mean that you're smarter, as cartoons like Pinky and the Brain and Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius would have us believe? Some studies claim the answer is yes. The emergence of magnetic resonance imaging, MRI, has made it possible to compare brain sizes of living humans, and in the ongoing hunt for a physical metric of intelligence, several researchers eagerly sought to correlate MRI measures of brain volume with IQ. Ten years ago, a meta-analysis that examined the results from 26 imaging studies concluded that the correlation between IQ and brain volume is consistently in the 0.3 to 0.4 range. More recently, a genome-wide association study, which included 20,000 human subjects, was widely reported by the media to have discovered an IQ gene. According to their results, certain variations in the HMGA2 gene, which codes for a protein that helps regulate DNA transcription and cell growth, are correlated with increased intracranial volume as well as enhanced IQ. To be honest, I find the correlation a bit unsettling. Clearly, there's more to intelligence than brain size, or classic geniuses like Albert Einstein, who had an average-sized brain, would have been out of luck. It is important to think about how we should actually define intelligence, and to keep in mind that the studies cited above only show a correlation between brain size and a person's score on an intelligence quotient test. Although IQ is historically the most widely used intelligence measure, by no means does it account for for all aspects of human intelligence, nor is it entirely consistent nor is it an entirely consistent readout of cognitive ability between individuals. Furthermore, a closer look at the results of the gene association study reveal that most of the relationship the authors found between HMGA2 gene variations and cranial size could be accounted for by the fact that the gene is also correlated with human height. Correlational... <clears throat> Correlational studies have only established a weak to moderate linear relationship between brain size and intelligence, which is enough to fuel which is enough fuel to ensure that the brain size and intelligence hypothesis doesn't burn out, but does little to explain the true basis of human cognitive capacity. Luckily, there is much more to the brain when you look at it under a microscope, and most neuroscientists now believe that the complexity of cellular and molecular organization of neural connections, or synapses, is what truly determines a brain's computational capacity. 
The view is supported by findings that intelligence is more correlated with frontal lobe volume and volume of gray matter, which is dense in neural cell bodies and synapses, than sheer brain size. Other research comparing proteins at synapses between different species suggests that what makes up synapses at the molecular level has had a huge impact on intelligence throughout evolutionary history. So although having a big brain is somewhat predictive of having big smarts, intelligence probably depends much more on how efficiently different parts of your brain communicate with each other. And then uh, good old Wikipedia also men mentions brain volume, which differs somewhat from uh, cranial size. And as that last article uh, from Stanford was saying, that brain volume rather than simply head size might have something to do with uh, intelligence. And this says, researchers have been able to identify correlates of intelligence within the brain and its functioning. These include overall brain volume, gray matter volume, white matter volume, white matter integrity, cortical thickness, and neural efficiency. Although the evidence base for our understanding of the neural basis of human intelligence has increased greatly over the past 30 years, even more research is needed to fully understand it. The neural basis of intelligence has also been examined in animals such as primates, cetaceans, and rodents. Cetaceans being a fancy word for the uh, whale family, I believe. Uh, let's see. It talks a little bit about brain size. Another theory of brain size in vertebrates is that it may relate to social rather than mechanical skill. Cortical size relates directly to a pair bonding lifestyle, and among primates, cerebral cortex size varies directly with the demands of living in a large, complex social network. Then uh, there's a site, neurology.org, that has an abstract from an academic paper. Um... It looks like this is dated 98, and it names some of the uh, academics. Let's see, M.J. Tramo, M.D., um, T.A. Stuckel, Ph.D., uh, another Ph.D., Brain Size, Head Size, and Intelligent Quotient, and Monozygotic Twins. And it talks about... Uh, Significant correlations were observed among forebrain volume, cortical surface area, and colossal area, blah, blah, blah. Um, and between each brain measure and head circumference, there was no significant correlation between IQ and any brain. Uh, okay, so <laughs> I just found another article, but guess what? It's by Arthur Jensen. Race and sex differences in head size and IQ. <laughs> well, I didn't, like I said, I didn't even want to go down this poison path again, but I took so much flack over the head size thing that I just wanted to kind of prove that I didn't pull it out of the ether. And even though it's still one of those things where the jury still seems to be out, um, it is something that academics are still discussing. So... Don't shoot the messenger, guys. Um, and and to be honest, I just to reiterate again, I didn't even really want to talk about race, but I felt like I had to answer some uh, feedback and criticisms. Um, after I'm done recording this episode, I am letting the whole race IQ and head size thing go. <laughs> I am letting it 
go and I hope it evaporates even from the dark recesses of my mind. Um, something I didn't even really give any real thought to until last week and something I'll be happy not to think about for a very long time to come. Can I please just go back to being good old um, inoffensive me? But I hope this has been a decent mea culpa. I hope I did right by you guys by by looking at that series of articles by Sailton and pointing out what may, might be the racial bias um, on behalf of the researchers, uh, Rushton and Jensen, whose work he supposedly heavily drew from, at least according to uh, Metcalf. And I hope you guys will once again take me at my word, my sincere word that uh, I don't have any preoccupation with race, as you guys know who are regular listeners. I don't even like the concept of race. I like to focus on our common humanity. I like to think of us as one species, one race. And that's not just ethically. This is scientifically, too. Because like that um, article I read a couple weeks back that spoke about how many scientists feel ambivalent about the term race or don't like using it because they don't feel it's accurate because we are all so close genetically, it's not even really worth dividing us up into racial groups. And I'm trying to think how to word it properly, but I remember hearing the fact, and I've mentioned it on the show before, that supposedly that there's more difference between you know two siblings in an immediate family genetically than there is between two so-called quote-unquote racial groups where we are that close genetically out of africa baby out of africa uh as uh richard dawkins would put it we're african apes i'm an african ape <laughs> all right man i hope you guys accept my mea culpa um and I made a liar out of myself. I apologize to those people who are expecting an episode on um, Confucianism and um, Shintoism. I, I hope to get to that uh, relatively soon, maybe in the next couple of weeks. I think my next episode is going to be on the controversy surrounding uh, the 14-year-old Texas science student Ahmed Mohammed and the kind of makeshift clock that he brought to school, some kind of science project you wanted to show his teacher. And now there's this whole hubbub surrounding it. Um, Richard Dawkins and Bill Maher got involved. Cenk Uger got involved. Um, was it just an innocent science project? Um, was the kid looking for, for attention and he he meant for it to look like a phony bomb. Um, I don't know. These are theories floating around, and I'm going to take an honest look at them. And uh, that will probably be my next video uh, slash podcast episode after this. Uh, but before I go, I wanted to do something kind of fun and um, read a couple of YouTube comments, kind of end on that note. There's a really good guy who calls himself Django Segovia. 
Um, he became a subscriber during the whole flying monkey debacle, uh, where Devin's minions misguidedly showered me in monkey poop. He was one of the people that actually took the time to actually watch the video and like the content enough they decided to stick around. Here's his response to last week's episode, uh, Atheist Ruin Race. Oh my god, I was so damn nervous for you the entire time that I felt a strange sense of relief when the video ended. Listening to you tread the fine line between naive political correctness and insensitivity or bigotry by virtue of ignorance was an intellectual tightrope act that was really captivating to listen to. Knowing full well that one poorly worded statement or even something you failed to mention could mean the difference between you being racist or a social justice warrior. And I replied, that's exactly Exactly what it was like, a tightrope, you worded it perfectly. One wrong word or poorly worded phrase could have meant the difference between being perceived as an SJW or a racist. I'm glad that one is over too. And I butchered her name last time, I'm probably going to butcher it again. Uh, I apologize ahead of time. Uh, she's really cool and she also recently uh, liked the Facebook page. And her handle, uh, is it Sade Dominia? Memphis Bahotep. I'm sure I butchered it and she'll give me a friendly ribbing about it. But she said rut row. And <laughs> I think that was in response to the fact that a uh, rift had developed between Rue and I. And uh, she also says, hmm, you're right about the past explaining the present, but that should never be an excuse. And I think that the Rue thought that was what you meant. Ah, well, I'm always here. <laughs> And I thanked her for the uh, support and said, much appreciated. And she said, you're welcome, you white guilt riddled bastard. <laughs> uh, she's funny. And then I recently found out that another friend of mine, I consider him a friend. We interact a lot on Twitter. Um, we first became friends because he's a listener uh, of the show. And he secretly had a YouTube alias he was going under and he revealed, revealed it to me recently that he's been commenting on my recent videos using this, using this alias. And I cannot even read some of the things he said on the air. They're crazy. They're outrageous, but they're hilarious. Uh, I'm die. I wish I could read one of them, but it's just, it's, it's too over the top even uh, for me. So uh, it'll be an inside joke between me and him. But anyway, I hope you guys know I'm not racist. And now I'm probably going to get pushed back <laughs> from uh, people on the uh, other side of this argument because now they're probably going to see me as being too PC. What can I tell you, man? I, I think I'm pretty much being myself. At least I'm trying. I'm trying to be a nice guy who still pays attention to the facts. Uh, I'm going to catch shit from either side, no matter what I do. All I can do is try to be honest and at the same time, try to be nice. It doesn't, doesn't pay to be a nice guy, man. I tell you. And sometimes it doesn't pay to be intellectually honest either. And, and that's like, it seems like you'd think it'd be a good combination being an intellectually honest, nice guy, but no, man, it, it puts you in the middle of the road and you end up getting run over by people in both lanes. Um, but anyway, peeps, marshmallow peeps, covered in little crystalline sugar particles. 
Um, I'm getting tired and uh, kind of drunk on sleep deprivation, so I'll probably call it quits. You guys know the drill. Fit, fitter. Yeah, fitter. Yeah, I just create a new social media platform, fitter. Uh, it's like Twitter for exercise enthusiasts. But um, you guys know the drill. Twitter, Facebook, Stitcher. Check out the YouTube channel. Please do that. So I'm not embarrassed by my incredibly low view count. You can go to iTunes and review the show there. Subscribe to the show there. You can go to Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N, and look for The Week in Doubt. You can check out the archives going all the way back to the inaugural episode. And while you're there, if you want, there's a Patreon-esque thing feature you can use to support the show monetarily. You can also use the PayPal widget at the bottom of the page. There's all that famous alliteration. Um... You can also support the show monetarily by going to patreon.com slash the week in doubt. You can pledge as little as $1 a month and quit anytime you want. But that being said, I am out. Thanks, guys. Until next week.